0: Welcome to The Geopolitics of Business, a show where we explore what happens when business and politics collide and how leaders respond. I am Sam Jima. This week on the show, we explore Britain's economy and place in the world post-Brexit.
1: I think there has been a, a significant improvement, but of course, we've not yet tackled the fundamental that we've broken ourselves off from our largest single market and historically our most obvious partner.
0: That's Lord Michael Heseltine, former Deputy Prime Minister of Great Britain, a titan of British politics for over half a century, and one of the few Conservative voices who spoke out against Brexit.
2: We need to prioritise issues to do with boosting productivity. Uh, The role of government is to make it a lot easier for private investment spending to be a real incentive.
0: And that's Lord Jim O'Neill, an independent member of the House of Lords, former UK Treasury Minister, and former Chairman of Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Lord O'Neill will offer some further reflections. In this episode, I'm delighted to have two big beasts of British politics and economics join me. We discuss the prospects of the UK after leaving the European Union, and consider what its unique selling point can be outside the main blocks of our changing world. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Lord Heseltine, you've had a long and storied career in British politics, recently celebrated your 90th birthday, and you are still a parliamentarian as a member of the House of Lords. But I want you to take me back to the beginning. When was the moment where you said to yourself, this is what I want to be doing?
1: Well, my answer to that question is 1951 in October when I was walking down the main street of Swansea and on the opposite side of the road, I saw a hoarding saying 1951 general election campaign, Henry Kirby. And I thought, well, I want to help. And I crossed the road. I had no intention of doing so. I was off to have coffee with friends. But I crossed the road and said, can I help? And 10 days later, I went up to Oxford University And my first day, I joined the University Conservative Association, the City of Oxford Conservative Association, and the Oxford Union. So I think that is the answer to your question from my perspective. But then there was someone who taught me at school at the age of seven who said, Oh, no, I always knew you'd be a politician. So you take your pick.
0: But I mean, your involvement in politics didn't end in 1951. You've been involved. Ever since then, um, you are referred to by the British press as a political big beast because you've operated the highest levels of government, you've been involved in the big political battles and dramas over the decades, including standing up to Margaret Thatcher, the height of her political power. And you're also you've also got the affectionate nickname Tarzan. So looking f- forward from 1951 and where you are now. How did those nicknames come about? Do they suit you?
1: Well, uh, (laughs) you know, they they could be a lot worse, couldn't they? Uh, Tarzan, I think, because I had physical characteristics in association with Johnny Washtenmother, who played Tarzan in the films, uh, long hair and blonde. But, uh, um, you know, the, the really interesting thing about this background perspective I can remember in September 1939 listening to Neville Chamberlain announce the declaration of war with Germany and I lived through the war and uh, therefore I grew up uh, as an undergraduate under the shadow of the European movement where the absolute obsession in Europe was it must never happen again because this after all for the French and the Germans was the third war in seventy-five years, and the younger generation, many of them had been part of the resistance movements or uh, had had been involved in active service, were absolutely determined it must never happen again. And I was caught up in all of that. And and
0: of course the um the premise of this podcast is how geopolitics is impacting business, and how business is having to deal with an environment in which politics is becoming more ideological rather than economic in some of the decisions that are being made. So let's talk about Brexit. Perhaps one of the most significant geopolitical events in this century. Britain, home to one of the financial centres of the world, and a major player in global decisions, voted in a referendum to give up its voice, veto and vote as a leading member of the European Union one of the major power blocks in the world. I think of all those who lived through that trauma, and I I also bear the scars of that battle on my back from my Brexit stance. But can you tell me your perspective on what the fight for Brexit was like for you? Uh,
1: Well, uh, I I think you've implied my answer. Uh, The European Union is one of the power blocks of our future. It is now. It is now, yes, um, but will continue to be and the role of this country on its own will never be as significant as it would be as a leading member of the European Union. But the other way around is that the European Union will take decisions which actually dictate what happens in this country. Uh, So, for both reasons, both are sort of selfish. I want to be uh, part of where the decisions are taken. uh, And secondly, I don't want someone else taking them in my absence. And I don't want to be a bit player on a smaller stage than, in my view, we deserve to be. So all of that argues for us being part of the European Union. And time and again, in my political career, I came face to face with choices which clearly indicated that, on any rational basis, we had to be part of the evolving Europe. Well, I will give you various examples, but the the first one was um, in 1973. I was Minister of Aerospace, and officials came to me and said, "Look." Um, Uh, would you be kind enough to sign this document which authorises £6 million to British industry because the French and the Germans are up to their tricks again and they're they're subsidising their endeavours and we mustn't let them get away with it. And so I said, well, of course, I very much understand your anxiety, but before we go too far down this decision-making road, uh, would you tell me how much Britain spends on space in total. How much Europe combined spends on space in total, and how much the United States of America spends on space? I'll never forget the answers. Six million pounds UK, 200 million pounds Europe, 1.2 billion pounds the United States. And so I said, look, before I sign away six million pounds, I think we ought to try and create a European space agency, which we did, Uh, that was in 73. So I I go to one other example, and that was uh, General Abrahamson came to see me when I was Defence Secretary, and it would have been 1984, something like that. And he had been put in charge by President Reagan of the Strategic Defence Initiative you're too young to know what that meant, but it's a screen, a technological screen, to stop missiles penetrating the airspace of the country that is defending itself. And General Abraham said, explained this to me, which I, I broadly was familiar with, and he said, I've got a budget of $29 billion to create this extraordinary miraculous defensive system. And do you know, Secretary of he said, I could spend a hundred million with Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, where they are at the leading edge of this sort of one he named the technology. You see, I didn't hear him say that. What I heard him say, I've got $29 billion. I know where all the leading edge technology is being developed across the world and I'm going to enter into partnerships with them all. And once you understand that, you understand Silicon Valley. It's not a triumph of the capitalist American system, although they have exploited it brilliantly. It is the product of NASA and the American defense budget. And then fast forward now to the great environmental programs that the Americans are pouring huge sums of money into
0: The Inflation Reduction Act, I think, is yeah the one.
1: E- Europe is spending large sums of money. And I keep reading in the British newspapers about we're at the leading edge. It's just not possible for an economy of our size to actually pay the bills at the leading edge of all these technologies.
0: I think you know, it's very interesting what you say around the Inflation Reduction Act in the US to subsidize... Um, decarbonization, You've got the CHIPS Act in the US. You've got the EU version in response to the Inflation Reduction Act. China is obviously subsidising its technology industry. How does a mid-sized country like Britain make its way in the world when it's not part of any of these larger power blocks?
1: Well, that's why the government has woken up to the fact they have to rejoin the European Science Programme. Uh, Because you're absolutely right. Just incidentally, I first went to uh, China in 1973. It was a peasant economy. And of course, I've been back time and again since then. And the transformation is probably the most dramatic thing that's ever happened in human societies. The idea that that was all done by the private sector in China is just laughable. Um, It has been the most formidable state-organized transformation we've ever seen. Uh, So you now have this incredible phenomenon of the United States, China, India with dramatically large budgets You have the European Union combining the European nations in order to compete on the same stage. And Britain thinking somehow or other, with a relatively small, medium-sized economy, it can do it all on its own. Well, it can't.
0: So when Brexit happened, it was a shock to the world. When you heard the news, what were your very first thoughts about it?
1: I think that it wasn't a shock. I saw it coming. It was always very tight. But you see, I'd have to answer the question, Why? what was the the underlying Brexit situation? The underlying Brexit situation was a pretty simple one. First of all, people's living standards had been very seriously prejudiced after the 2008 economic difficulties. So people were frustrated. And when you have frustrated people, the politicians move in to show them an easy way out. And there was an easy way out, a thoroughly reprehensible way out. Them, foreigners, civil servants, bureaucrats, immigrants. And there was the undertone of race tied up in all of this. The 40 million Turks are going to be allowed in when they join the European Union, do you remember that? I remember it very well. So that was what Brexit was really about. It was about it was a reincarnation of Enoch Powell's speech of 1968, which was another massively immoral speech, because it it gave it whetted an appetite for racial hatred without giving any conceivable solutions to the problems. So Brexit was a rerun, another attempt to stir up the passions which throughout history and across the world have always been a massive disruptor politically. The, the people's suspicion of someone who's different, who's someone who comes from a different part of the world, a different religion, a different culture, a different tribe, a different whatever it may be. That is the easy place for the politicians who wish to create a false impression of how they can change something. And that was the underlying Brexit case against the background of economic frustration. Of course.
0: And um, as was foreseen at the time, Brexit has been a mess. And several polls suggest the public is coming round to this view. It doesn't look like we can cancel Brexit anytime soon. So what is a feasible path forward for the UK? So joining the single market, the customs union, more alliances like the one Horizon, the scientific... Research programme.
1: Well, I think you slightly understate public opinion. The last poll I saw showed that 68% of the population think Brexit was a mistake. That's that's not like the 1% majority they secured in the Brexit vote. So, I think the answer to your question is, the 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 reversal has already begun. It's it's already there have been changes to deal with the Irish sea complications. The Irish border issue, yes. We have now seen the science issue being, uh, the Horizon programmes being up for negotiation. Complication over labelling goods is being put back and put back because of the outcry that will come when it's imposed. So the process is already unravelling. And two things have to happen. First of all, those of us who care, and we are now a majority, have to argue the case and vote the case uh, and expose the weaknesses. Uh, I'm a member of the European Union, and they now uh, regularly produce, on an almost daily basis, uh, an analysis of the disaster of Brexit, and they will continue to do so. Incidentally, Churchill was once president of the European Union, an honour I now hold. So the process is unravelling, and I have the slightest doubt that whoever is in power after the next election, they will find ways to seek a closer relationship.
0: So so the the direction of travel, as you see it, is closer and closer realignment with the European Union. But another issue is that Britain's status in the world has taken a battering. And it feels like the country's voice carries less influence in Washington, D.C., Beijing, Brussels, and even among some of the BRICS countries. What, in your view, can be done to restore credibility, particularly with the business
1: community? Well, I'm afraid the answer is the same one. We have to recognize that our influence depends upon our political and economic standing, and it would be higher and stronger within the European Union. So the quicker we get back, the better. Uh, Now, I've never worked uh, in the financial institutions of the city, but all I read in the newspapers is about the migration from the city either to Europe or to the United States. It's just another thing that was constantly exposed as a danger. Now it's becoming a reality.
0: So let's talk about the political consequences of Brexit. Since 2016, we've had six finance ministers and five different prime ministers, including Liz Truss, who famously lasted 49 days. We've had three general elections in seven years. This does not instill confidence in investors and those in the business community who want certainty and clarity. Do you think we are any closer to having a more stable UK after the? Disaster of the mini budget
1: last year. Yes, I think that Rishi Sunak has brought sanity back to government. I don't agree with him about Brexit, but he is an intelligent, hard working man who is trying to grapple with the, some of the very difficult problems, and, the, and he has got a tray full of difficult problems. So uh, I think there has been a realignment of opinion about the way the country is being run. And the Brexiteers are now marginalised, although they're not banished because they're still there on the fringe of politics, but they're not at the heart of government anymore. So I think there has been a, a significant improvement, but of course we've not yet tackled the fundamental that we've broken ourselves off from our largest single market and historically our most obvious partner.
0: And domestically the UK is having waves of strikes you know and broken Britain has entered the political vernacular. Is Britain broken? Is Britain going back to the 1970s when it was the sick man of Europe, or do you see a more optimistic outlook for the UK?
1: Well, I tell you, I think that um, there is a perfectly viable future. We have great strengths. Uh, the tourist industry here is uh, built in, in rock, as far as I can see. And as the world gets more prosperous, there'll be more tourists. Our culture, our history are, are all able to attract. Our universities attract huge numbers of students. So there are all sorts of good things. We're not going to disappear from the planet. We're not going to all become impoverished overnight or anything like that. It's that we just won't be as successful as we were, as influential as we should be, as powerful as we should be. And this is the language of politics, and it is these sort of theoretical concepts that are damaged by Brexit. And you could ask, does anyone care? Well, I think people do care, but it's not often perhaps the great motivating issue. And so if people could feel that their living standards were rising, they might become tolerant without seeking any dramatic change. But uh, my view, the responsibility of politicians is to lead, and to lead in Britain's self-interest is to take us back into the heart of Europe.
0: Lord Heseltine, thank you for taking
1: the time. Great pleasure. I enjoyed talking to you.
0: My conversation with Lord Heseltine got me thinking about the tough task ahead for current and future British governments. Before we leave you today, I wanted to offer one more perspective of how my home country can rebound. And for that, I turn to one of the UK's leading economists, Lord O'Neill. Jim, you had a celebrated career as an economist at leading global financial institutions. I'm really interested You know, business and government are different worlds, and I certainly experienced that. And you've worked across the divide in a number of ways, finance, government, but you've also advised both the Conservative government and the Labour Party. I'm intrigued. So what are the important things you think about when you think about government and business people and what they miss um, about each other?
2: Let's just say the UK has had a rather chaotic political situation, partly because of Brexit, partly because of complications of how the world has been. And at the core of it, I think I would have some sympathy for the argument that aspects of how globalisation developed, particularly in the old industrialised economies, or many of them the so-called advanced ones, didn't result in either the, the kind of benefits to many of those communities nor did it result in policies to redistribute some of the gains of globalization enough to them. And I think whatever the rights and wrongs of Brexit, and I I call myself an objective, modest remainer, one could see why people from certain communities in the UK would easily be swayed to the idea that, you know, what had happened to the world didn't benefit them. And obviously, As a result of that outcome, uh, it influences people that want to have power and in in many cases genuinely represent what they think are the interests of the uh, local communities as elected MPs. You know, the UK has had, even by some of its own standards of the past, remarkable turmoil in the political machinations, as well as, to some degree, also in parts of how the civil service operates
0: where are we now politically and economically? How do you sort of characterise the state of the British economy seven years on?
2: Linking the build-up and what I think is the crucial problem of the UK, it's a problem in many Western societies, but bigger in the UK, we have a tremendous productivity problem. And uh, it goes to not just aspects of how globalisation hasn't worked, but how aspects of the textbook economic model uh, haven't worked? You know, it's it's complicated. But yeah. a, a very long period of uh, apparently rising profit growth, especially amongst big companies, and uh, also with very low interest rates, and until recently, quite a lot of tax incentives. Um, a textbook would tell you in the 70s and 80s that would lead to a significant rise in investment spending, which is part and parcel of trying to boost productivity. Uh, but it's not never happened. We need to have more honesty and sincerity about dealing with the scale of that challenge. And that's why we have so much productivity weakness. And with it, such weak wage gains for over a decade, in my opinion.
0: So that has an impact on inequality that has an impact on national prosperity, but business has got to be part of this. Business is part of the solution. And one of the things I noticed, and I resigned for different, slightly different reasons to you, but as a Remainer as well, is Brexit put sovereignty above economics, you could say. And that ruptured that relationship between business and government. And I wonder, you know, whether we are now at a stage where Business can be a little bit more confident in the political trajectory that the country is on?
2: I mean, one hopes so. But um, it's all about policymakers trying to think more carefully about the right decisions, including incentives for business. You know, business, especially publicly quoted business, responds to its shareholders primarily. Uh, And even though we've entered an era, uh, about greater purpose, especially as it relates to things like equality uh, between genders, and especially on issues to do with the enormous challenge on climate change as we're living through. It, it's quite difficult to do that. So I think at the core of it, we need to prioritise issues to do with boosting productivity. Uh, the role of government is to make it a lot easier for private investment spending to be a real incentive. And then in addition, uh, the government itself has to play a much bigger role and oblige on them to uh, scorecard, as it's called, uh, and as part of that forecast regularly, as part of their annual debt sustainability reports, what would be uh, the long-term economic benefits or costs and with it, the long-term debt consequences of, let's say, the twenty biggest important uh, infrastructure projects are there. Uh, whether that be early years education, for example, which is something that seems obvious to me, uh, or various often discussed, uh, you know, more physical infrastructure projects. Jim
0: O'Neill, thank you very much.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Next time on the geopolitics of business. We wrap up season one with a big talk on big tech. Great dreams aren't just visions. They're visions coupled to strategies for making them real. I speak with Dr. Astro Teller, co-founder and CEO of X. Not to be confused with Twitter X, this is Alphabet's moonshot factory. We speak about the technologies that will shape the future of humanity and what that means for business leaders. In the meantime, do check out my LinkedIn newsletter to get your key takeaways from the podcast and contact us at info at the geopolitics of Thanks for listening to the geopolitics of business. I'm Sam Jima and I'm the show's host and executive producer. Our show is produced by FB studios, whose team includes Ashley Westman, Claudia Tatey, and Rob Sachs with additional production support from Nikki Black of SGA Media. If you like the show, please follow and subscribe and share with your friends.
1: Views and opinions on the show do not necessarily represent those of foreign policy, its affiliates, or any institution the host is associated with. And as a reminder, while our program does contain broad advice that can be useful for investors, we highly recommend that individual investors consult with an independent financial advisor before making any investment
0: decision.